Hello and welcome to the Femcyclopedia. On this episode we discuss Dr James Barry and Lady Hester Stanhope and have a Yar Odenine featuring two of our favourites, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Enjoy! Okay, go for it. Here we are. So, I have another Irish person today. You're obsessed. I am obsessed with the Irish at the moment. Um, I bring you Dr. James Barry. James? Dr. James Barry. Okay, we'll, we'll go with this. Well, let's go with this. Let's I'm go going to this. explain how Dr. James Barry gets his place in the Femcyclopedia. Okay. And I'm also going to say that I will probably be switching pronouns willy-nilly. Sounds like a good <laughs> choice of word. <laughs> <laughs> because Dr. James Barry was born Margaret Ann Bulkley. Ah, okay. And we're not quite sure when Margaret was born. So I'm going to be calling Margaret she when she's Margaret and he when she's James. Okay, fair enough. Understandable. I hope that's cool with everyone. Yeah. It just makes it easier in my brain. Um, so yeah, we're not sure of uh, the uh, year that uh, Margaret was born. But I want to start off by giving Do we know you... roughly? Like what century? Oh yeah, it's um, uh, late, Nine... very late 1700s. Oh okay. Yeah. Yeah, so late 1700s, yeah. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to paint a picture Great. so you Looking understand <laughs> how Margaret became Dr. James Barry. That's okay. the kind of thing I'm going to focus on. So, um, Margaret's father had debts and he had borrowed heavily to set up in trade. He had a grocer's shop, which is where they also lived. Um, and he had other occupations, including a job at the Weighhouse. Right. How did I guess at what you think he did at the Weighhouse? Weighed things. He did, but he was probably a butter inspector. <laughs> I don't know why I just I found that interesting. It's a bit like when there used to be. Do you remember when there used to be the Cypriot Potato Inspecting Board or something? On something Green like Lanes? that on Green Lane. Yeah, yeah, it's very specific. It may well still be there. It's not. I've looked for it many oh, a time. Really? I know. That's a shame. My childhood eroded. <laughs> <laughs> so he was a butter inspector and a grocer. <laughs> Her mother, Mary Ann, came from a respectable but somewhat kind of diminished family who were formerly title no wealth sort of thing. Yes. Um, So Mary Ann was the only girl in her family. This is very important to note. She had, um, everyone else were, were boys and largely they were no good. Okay. They caused her a lot of problems. Um, except one of her brothers, James, went on to be a very famous painter with a number of eminent patrons. Hmm. He became a member of the Royal Academy. Oh, very he nice. Was James Barry, Royal Academy. Uh-huh. Anyway, so uh, Margaret, who will become James Barry. Yeah. Let's try not to get this yes. fat, like the Tutmas is. Yes, yes. We can't get them confused. So, so um, confused. Little Jim. Jeremiah the Butter <laughs> Inspector and Mary Ann. <laughs> this is starting to sound like a bloody Beatrix Potter. <laughs> Jeremiah the Butter Inspector. And Mary Ann raised their family as if they were always expecting their conditions to improve. So they lived okay. somewhat above their means. This was mainly down to Jeremiah, I feel. Um, Margaret was educated, but purely with marriage in mind. 
Um, and her brother John. What sort of education just, do you need for marriage? Well, not a very broad one. <laughs> um, really, you know, sewing, cooking, whatever. So, so you've got Jeremiah Birthing. the butter inspector, Mary <laughs> Anne, and they had two children, John and Margaret. John was destined for the legal profession, although Margaret was in fact far cleverer than her brother. Always. But a decent marriage was all that was expected of her. Obviously. Later on in life, Margaret would write letters to her brother where she daydreamed of being a soldier. But in mm-hmm. the time at which she was born, this was simply a daydream and never, you know, never a realistic possibility. So sadly, ruin came to the Bulkley family when, already saddled with debt, Jeremiah lost his job as a butter inspector. Did he eat too much butter, do you think? <laughs> I don't know. Was his eye not as good as it should be? But he um, obviously then just had the grocery business to rely on. Um... How much did you get paid as a butter inspector well, then if that actually, caused financial ruin? You'd be I think the problem was he'd borrowed a lot of money to set up the grocery yes, shop. Of course. And so he was yeah, mm. he was just living above his means. Um but John the son still managed to go off and study study law, but the family's financial problems would cast a shadow over the family for many years. Um now, this is probably the most tragic part of Margaret's story. I'm glad we're getting it out of the way first. Get it out of the way. Um, but sometime between 1801 and 1803, when she was about 12 or 14, we assume that she was raped. Right. And I say this because the event is completely sh- shrouded in mystery. Um, and I don't see how a girl of 12 or 14 could genuinely consent to uh, sex. Um, but what all we know is that all of a sudden the Bulkleys had a new child. And the circumstances at the time were that um, Jeremiah and Mary Ann were in middle age. They'd only managed to have two children in their many, many, many years of being married. Um, But publicly, the child was introduced as Margaret's sister. Okay. As if she was one of the family. Um, And her name was Juliana, which was a family name on uh, Margaret's mother's side. So it looked to all intents and purposes as though though she were a genuine daughter. But again, there are no documents which fully explain the circumstances surrounding Juliana's birth. But one theory is that the rape was committed by Redmond Barry, one of Mm. Mary Ann's no good brothers. So her uncle. So Margaret's uncle. So, so Joanna, that sounds a bit almost like incest to me. <laughs> Damn! <laughs> can you legally marry your uncle? You should know. You keep asking these things, so you can marry your cousin. I think we should find out and put oh. this to bed once and for all. Well, there's an interesting turn of phrase. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about Redmond Barry, who was the uncle on on Margaret's mother's side. Mm-hmm. He had endured an incredibly hard life at sea and could be described as wild, uneducated, living a lawless, squalid life. Sounds like me. (laughs) And along, um, he and a woman, who I presume he was romantically involved with, got a sailor drunk and robbed him. Anyway, 30 years uh, after he left his home in Cork, he reappears seeking refuge, possibly getting away from this uh, robbery. Um... He always, Redmond always considered himself to be hard done by, particularly in terms of the share of his parents' legacy that he'd been granted, whereas uh, Margaret, mm-hmm. uh, the, sorry, Mary Ann, Margaret's mother, yeah. had had more money. When Redmond arrived back in Cork, his sister, Mary Ann, and husband, Jeremiah, no longer a butter inspector, begrudgingly showed him hospitality, but they were themselves in a very precarious financial situation. Yeah. Nobody knows exactly what happened, but he was, Redmond was essentially run out of town by the Bulkleys. Mm, well even being shunned by other members of the family outside of Cork. 
So it does sound like... We can't be sure what happened, but it, it's no surprise that he's viewed as a suspect. Of course. Um, to all intents and purposes, the men surrounding Margaret Bulkley made terrible financial decisions, which left Margaret and her mother virtually destitute. Uh, her brother John, for example, made an advantageous match, which ended up costing the family dearly. Margaret's mother, Jeremiah... Um, Margaret's father, sorry, Jeremiah, sold some of his properties, but he'd been using these to secure debts oh, and, right, and okay. loans and so, things. So, yeah, he didn't get the full value. So, um, when his creditors discovered this, they started to pursue pursue him. Um, and also, Margaret's brother, John, made other bad decisions, which meant that Margaret and her mother had nothing at all. Ooh. Nice, aren't they? Fun times. Fun times. So what this eventually means is that they are forced to request the help of the only brother who has the financial means to help them. I think I know who that could be. The painter James Barry. Yeah. Royal Academy. To cut a long story short, Margaret and her mother make a number of visits to London. They are pleading and begging with James Barry to financially assist them. When they get there, what they find is that he is living in absolute squalor. Obviously, he's an artist. He's an artist living in... Uh, he's not without means... But still... But his house is very dilapidated, he's wearing threadbare clothes, and he's living largely on his reputation with only one or two loyal patrons to rely on. And despite their pleading letters and visits, he consistently refuses to help them. Mm. Which is incredibly harsh. So, however, fortunes take a turn when, early in 1806, James Barry is suddenly pronounced dead. Right. Now, he hasn't left a will... But he has left a substantial estate, but without a will, there's no option but to find the next of kin and suddenly so it's a on, He race. was living in squalor. So he had money, but he was just choosing to live in squalor. Yes. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. And so because he was living yeah, a very meagre existence, yeah. he's building up all of this of course. properties and whatever yes. else. Um, and so now it's kind of like a race for the family members to claim his Is that estate. that when they call it it's intestate or something? Something like that, yeah. Damn, we should have asked Dad. So nothing was ever easy for Margaret and her mother and they had to fight for every penny, including a claim from Redmond Barry, which they had to fight off or pay him off. But eventually they managed to put themselves in a slightly better financial position and they also started to become, acqu to become acquainted with members of James Barry the Painter's circle. Okay, I see, yeah. And it's amongst this group of very liberal-minded friends that the plan was hatched. So that you're, they're in a position where they've got a more um, Margaret and her mother, and now all the, they've left all the men behind. They yep. don't want anything to do mm -hmm. with any of the other men. It's just them on their own. Um, and they're in a position where they've got a little bit of money, but it's not enough to live off for the rest of sure. their lives. So Margaret is very, very, very clever. And so um, along with a man called General Francisco Miranda... Oh, who knows about that one? Throw these names Dr. Me. Edward Fryer, who helped Margaret with her education, and Daniel Reardon, who was a solicitor, they enabled the teenager, um, Margaret, to enter medical school disguised as a man. Wow, that's a nice kind of... I Yeah, a lot of people backing you and helping you. That's quite a nice... So overnight in 1809, suddenly Margaret packs all her dresses away and becomes James Barry. And what they do is they claim that, that James Barry is a nephew of James Barry. Oh, I see, yeah. Um, named after James Barry. Yeah, so you're sense. kind of giving yourself yes, some status. Um, and she, yeah, she's passed off as the nephew of the late James Barry, the Irish romantic painter. And she lives as James Barry for the next 
56 years. Good Lord. The problem is, of course... I can think of several. (laughs) James Barry, the new James Barry, is short, has an unbroken voice, delicate features and smooth skin. Hmm. Many were suspicious, not that Barry was a woman, but that he was a precocious child, not old enough to attend medical school. Ah, I see, okay. So this is how they kind of pass uh, Margaret off as James Barry. Suspicion followed James Barry his entire life, and it would have been his undoing if he had not been utterly brilliant as a doctor. And there are a number of occasions where people gossip about him, They make jokes about him, say that he's effeminate and all these kind of things. Although few people, by the time that he's in medical school, few people believe that a woman is intellectually capable of those things. So a lot of it, it's all a bit of like double bluffing. Because I think, woman could never do that. Yeah, totally. So that's partly how he gets away with it. His bedside manner could be amazing. And uh, although he was known to fly into fits of rage if his instructions were not carried out to the letter. So there are stories (laughs) of him walking into stifling, stale rooms with curtains and windows and everything closed. And he flings them open with such force that he shatters glass. Good Lord. He's, yeah, he's not a man to be trifled with. No, Um, he's not a man. (laughs) He, att- he attended quite a few eminent clients, which is also partly how he made his name, providing these spectacular sort of miracle cures, in inverted commas, not little vials of, you know... Magic stuff. Magic. But he he sees a lot of these wives who are um, living on their nerves or whatever you want to call it and realises that they're just bored and they need a holiday. Yeah. So he says to the husbands, oh, get them a hobby, take them on holiday. And suddenly these women are cured and everyone thinks he's amazing when he just understands what it's like to be a woman and have the restrictions placed upon you. So he joins the army in 1813 Mm. and very quickly achieves a promotion which was equivalent to becoming a lieutenant in December 1815. Lieutenant. Sorry. Americans say lieutenant, we say lieutenant. (laughs) by my younger sister. Ouch. <laughs> anyway, James Barry is posted to Cape Town and he has a letter of introduction to the governor, Lord Charles Henry Somerset. Mm-hmm. And after treating Somerset's daughter, he becomes very close with the family. I think, do I know where this is going? Do you? I don't know. <laughs> do you think that he and Somerset might... Mm. Do you know what? It... it it did get raised, but I haven't done enough research on fair that enough. area of James Barry's life. No, but there enough. was definitely a whiff of that, mm. I think. Or if not with him, with someone else. Um, he becomes Somerset's personal physician. Well. And in 1822, Somerset makes him the uh, colonial medical inspector, which was a huge promotion. It's a step up from butter, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah, my father's a butter inspector. <laughs> Uh, Barry went on over the next 10 years to bring about significant changes in the Cape, including improved sanitation and water systems, uh, better conditions for slaves, he was an abolitionist, I believe, uh, better conditions for conditions for prisoners and the mentally ill, a sanctuary for lepers, and he also uh, carried out what is believed to be one of the first caesarean wow. sections in uh, South Africa. Um, both child and mother survived, and the child was given Barry's name, 
which actually led to one of the Prime Ministers of South Africa bearing the name Barry in his oh. honour many years later. So other postings that he had were to Mauritius, Jamaica and other Caribbean islands, Malta, Corfu, the Crimea where he had a famous altercation with Florence Nightingale. I can't remember what it was about now but there was a bit of argy-bargy going on there. <laughs> he also went to um, Canada and many, 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 many other places. Um, and had an absolutely illustrious wow. career. Um, he was considered, he had this real dual uh, personality, if you like, going of course. on. Well, an amazing bedside manner, totally understanding the care that was needed for people. And on the other hand, if you crossed him, he was absolutely wild. He reminds me a little bit of... Of mother. No, <laughs> of Julie Daubeny, because he's living constantly a very precarious of life course. yeah 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 but by the same token just doing ridiculous things yeah he was in a duel he was being court-martialed for things and he's always relying on his friends in high places to get him out of sticky situations what you need friends in it high is places it is what you need um he was forcefully retired from the army in july 1959 um due to ill health Hang on, 1959? Sorry, 1859. About to say, God, he lived forever as well. It was those spectacular miracle cures. <laughs> well, actually, he may well, one of the reasons he probably lived uh, for a long time is because he was quite modern in the respect that he was a vegetarian, mm. a teetotal, very fond of pets and have a had a beloved poodle called Psyche. Wow. After all, isn't that a muse? Hmm. But also, he probably lived longer because he was a woman. And that, yeah. Probably helped. And that. Um, so, yeah, he was forcefully retired in 1859 due to ill health, dying from dysentery in 1865. Mm. This is the point at which his sex... Is discovered. Is discovered. So what... The story goes that he dies and a charwoman, as was the usual... Custom. Indeed. Uh, comes to lay him out. Yeah. Um... Which means removing clothes and everything yeah, yeah, else, yeah. putting on Washing clothes. And, yeah. Yeah. She instantly sees <laughs> really? that Barry is a woman and also notices the stretch marks on his stomach which reveal that he has had a child. She keeps it to herself for a long time but when she's poorly paid or there's some kind of um, problem she uh, starts to make a song and dance about it and that is how uh, James Barry's sex is discovered what is interesting though is if you see picture there are a couple of photographs all right. and James Barry looks to all intents and purposes very masculine mm. um, despite also being uh, described as sort of being very feminine and effeminate and soft skin and all the rest of it so I mean the pictures are taken of him later on in life yes um but a very, very, mm. very interesting, very interesting story. I yes. feel. Well, James, Margaret, Margaret Jane, Peggy. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, well done. Cheers, Cheers. well done. Yeah, order nine. Okay, so I have a yeah order nine for yeah, you. Yeah order nine involving. Two ladies who I think we both are rather good fans of. Go on. So you may well know this. Oh. So I'm taking a bit of a punt. <laughs> Risky business. Risky business. Okay. So. 
Betty Davis. Love her. Love her. <laughs> turns down the lead role in Mildred Pierce. Oh. Or Joan Crawford. Love her. Love her. Love her. Only named her dogs after characters she had played in films. Oh. Oh. Does that mean she had a dog called Mildred? Well, she named them after dog actually yeah. after dogs after characters she played in films. Okay, I'm having a drink. Just have a little thing. Oh. Right. Um, oh, now you're wrecking the flat. Betty Davis turned down the role in Mildred Pierce. I think that's true. Is that your answer? Blimey! There was that thing on TV recently which I watched avidly. What Betty and Joan? Feud. Yeah. Feud. But I don't think they mentioned. Either, Either of those, of those things, things in it. And it was a massive work of fiction. Oh, was it? Yeah, like most of it was. Okay. Like the things about them talking together and stuff on set, like they didn't speak to each other. There was no friendship. There was no attempt at any kind of friendship. Chubbies, whose side would you come down on if you had to? If you had to be oh. in Camp Bet or Camp Joan? Well, it's, it's hard, so isn't it? difficult. It's hard, isn't it? I like Betty Davis because she's tough and she doesn't mess around. But Joan Crawford had to overcome a lot of stuff. Well, they both did. I don't know. I'd have to. I'd have to be friends with both. I'd try and bridge that gap. <laughs> try and bridge that. Blimey. Okay. I'm. Oh, what the hell? I'm gonna go with the Mildred Pierce. That Betty Davis Betty turned Davis down the lead Yeah. You are correct. Yes. <laughs> she's Glory, making a comeback. Glory, hallelujah. Marvelous. Bloody marvelous. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers in my partially empty glass. Well, it's only your own oh, fault. Oh, God. Only got yourself to blame yeah, for that one. Well. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so have I got a girl for you? I certainly <laughs> hope you have. So I would like to present to you Lady Hester Stanhope. Wonderful. Queen of the desert. <gasps> oh, yes. Not the desserts. No. <laughs> No, that's me. <laughs> uh, so, Lady Hester Stanhope was born on the 12th of March in 1776 and was the granddaughter to Pitt the Elder Ooh. and niece to Pitt the Younger. Oh, I love a bit of Pitt the Elder oh, and the Younger. Oh, I know. A couple of Pitts. Yeah. Um, her parents were Charles Stanhope, who was the third Earl of Stanhope, and Lady Hester Pitt. Okay? Hmm. Hmm. And I wrote this sentence down... <laughs> After reading quite a lot, she seems to have had a typically upper-class bonkers childhood. <laughs> An example. It's the only way you could get away with a bonkers life is yeah, being upper-class. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, a prime example is her father um, siding with the revolutionary cause in France, and <laughs> from then on referring to himself as Citizen Stanhope, and referring oh to the family seat in Kent as Democracy Hall. Oh my God. He also would not let his children be educated outside of the home. They could only be homeschooled. Okay. Um, and she quarrelled with him non-stop. She was the only one of the children who were unafraid to sort of stand up to him. Oh. There seems to have been six children. Once again, from reading different sources, some people say that there was a stepmother, that, that Hester was the daughter of the first wife who died in childbirth with her third daughter... And that then there was a, a stepmother who then had three sons by the Earl. Um, but either way, she she um, 
she was one of six and she was the only one who was not afraid of daddy okay um age 24 she was forced to move in with her maternal grandmother right because she had quarreled with her father quite a lot after attending a party without a chaperone which was incredibly shocking how dare she in the 18th century she didn't even have a maid with her no one and this was a huge problem and she I'm so glad we didn't grow up in the era of chaperones I've never had a chaperone never knowingly had a chaperone you barely spell it uh, that was I said I not you um, she went on the grand tour oh. in 1802 Why which not? was yeah. her first um, uh, travel abroad um, but shortly after returning home she sort of became homeless because her grandmother died and obviously she couldn't go back to daddy because he was so beastly and she ended up moving in with Uncle Pitt the Younger ah very sensible um, and as he was unmarried she acted as hostess yes so while he was a, a prime minister she was at mm-hmm. Downing Street um, and she seemed to excel at this there are sort of contradictory reports that some people say she was stunningly beautiful some people said that wasn't so much she was beautiful but she was very charming mm-hmm. and um, she could hold a room yeah she, she was amazing anyway Pitt actually dies in 1806 okay and it's then that she's awarded an annual pension of 1200 pounds now I looked that up to try and work out it's always what that was per to... year and I found various things and it I think it might, and it does say it's a generous pension. I'm not sure if it's somewhere between sixty and eighty thousand pounds a year in okay. today's equivalent. I'm not sure it, but you get why later difficult on. Difficult to do the, the yeah, but it was it was a very handsome um, amount to have. In eighteen hundred and ten, and possibly after a failed love affair, although we're not sure, Hester decides she enjoyed going abroad so much that she wants to do it again. And mm-hmm. this, to me, is when Hester's life becomes brilliant okay i'm i'm ready right her entourage includes her maid a gentleman called charles lewis and i think it's marion okay and a young chap called michael bruce got an old chap and a young chap yeah brilliant yeah that's all you need and a maid um and it's michael bruce who becomes her sort of toy boy lover to begin with excellent they first on on the first leg of their journey they head towards athens um, and it's alleged that when they arrive in Athens, Lord Byron dives into the sea to greet her, to go out and get her. Mm. And she um, she actually didn't really know where she wanted to travel to. Okay. It was all a bit of a sort of open book. And at one point, he was going to travel with her. He was so enchanted by her. But he, he doesn't in the end. Mm. And it's also interesting to note at this point that once she leaves England, she will never, ever come back. Oh. Yeah. Um, although she does not know it at that point. Okay. Anyway, she had no real plan as to where to go or when. So she just decides to head towards Cairo. Why not? Why as not? As good a place as any. Just flip a coin. Yeah. Unfortunately, en route, uh, she and her party get shipwrecked on roads. Oh. And she decides to borrow the clothes of a Turkish gentleman, which include a robe, turban and slippers. Brilliant. This will, from now on be what she wears best costume of the day best costume of the day um and the party then begin their their journey which um they go to many places they travel all over the middle east really extensively it seems to be an area she really enjoys they go to gibraltar they go to malta they go to the peloponnese uh everywhere constantinople 
Um, now, in typical Hester fashion, she refuses constantly to do what she's told. Well, yes. Uh, and one very, very good example is that um, despite being told that she can't go to this place without wearing a veil, and she's a white woman, um, she decides to ride into Damascus in the midday sun okay. without a veil. Okay. <laughs> the people, in amazement, stop and stare at this white woman and declare her a queen. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you take a risk, people. Yeah, exactly. You never know what's <laughs> going to happen. Uh, so, yeah, she, she doesn't do what she's told or what is expected of her. She wears men's attire. Uh, on one day, she's presented with the severed head of a recently executed man, which she is unruffled by, but is slightly disappointed that it's being passed around like a pineapple. Oh, my gosh. She also... This is something that I just think is brilliant, because this, sort of, this is the sort of plan that I'd come up with. Go on. Now, bear in mind the sort of time we're talking about, the early 19th century, 1810 onwards. She decides that it would be a really great idea that she be given a visa or a pass, you know, to go yeah. to France, to ingratiate herself with Napoleon so she can spy on him and report back to England so we can defeat him. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, permission is not granted. <clears throat> um, in 1813, she decides to go to Palmyra. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Palmyra obviously being an ancient kingdom which famously was um, I think was it Zenobia with a queen who ruled it oh yeah Queen Zenobia she's Palmyra got, that is Palmyra she, right? uh, I'm not sure but I've heard of yeah. Queen Zenobia and I think she needs a, an episode she could well have one um, so she decides she wants to go to Palmyra it's worth noting that at this point no white woman has ever been to Palmyra you have to ride for a week through Wasteland, which is ruled, patrolled by a very dangerous Bedouin. Okay. The typical Hester... I don't think that's going to put her off. No. Typical Hester fashion. She goes up to a Bedouin chief and demands safe passage. <laughs> now look here, young man. I now don't really here. think you understand. I, I'd very much <laughs> like to go to Palmyra. What can you do about it? Um, she demands safe passage and they completely agree to give her it. And she arrives... <laughs> she arrives in Palmyra with servants, camels, 70 Bedouin bodyguards and they're all carrying lances with ostrich feather tips. Wow. That's so, she arrives in style. The awaiting crowds, because they're waiting for her, (laughs) absolutely adore her. She's mobbed on she's arrival and a wreath of palm leaves is placed on her head. She's literally Jesus. (laughs) I have been crowned queen of the desert. I have nothing to fear. I am the sun, the stars, the pearl, the lion. I am the light from heaven. That's what she thinks. Wow. She's very humble. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and once once she gets to Palmyra, she really thinks that she's uh, a queen. It is worthwhile noting yes. that by this point in her life, um, her appearance is a little unusual. Okay. She shaves her head so her turban fits better. That sounds practical to me. Yeah. She's still uh, wearing men's clothes, smoking a water practical, pipe. Practical. Pleasant, possibly. And has learnt to swear at her servants in three different languages. But just useful. <laughs> yeah. Always handy. Now, it is also worth noticing that this is probably the peak point in her life. Right. Okay. Okay. I'm ready for the downhill ride. Yeah. Um, at this point, her lover, Michael, her young toy boy, Michael Bruce... Oh, he's still around. He's good, still good. around. 
he has to return to England. Uh, it seems to be that there's either a, a relative who's very ill and also some odd sort of plague has come to the region and people are getting very frightened by it. So it may be a combination of that. Okay. Um, she hoped that their affair wouldn't be over and they promised to write to each other. He was going to give her financial support of something like £1,000 a year. None of it ever really materialises. Mm, well, there's a lesson for us all. Yeah, and also the scandal of their affair means that she now knows she can never go back to England. She's tainted. Although that surprises me. She seems like she doesn't really yeah. give a you-know-what. I know, Oot. but I think that maybe when she's in a different country, she can live however she wants, but maybe this sort of constraints your, back home. That'll be your uh, upper-class white privilege. Yeah, exactly. You get to be bonkers, but also constrained. Um, in 1814, she settles at the, I think, uh, the bottom of Mount Lebanon. In okay. Lebanon. Well, what is now modern-day Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's from here on in, really, that her behaviour becomes more and more strange. Right. After Michael had left, she'd got very, very ill with a sort of very violent fever. Okay. And it is thought that this fever was so severe that it actually damaged her brain. Ah. And that this could be a reason why she does some of the things okay. that she does. I mean, t- to be honest, she did sound like she was slightly unhinged before. She, she definitely was. This may have just tipped a tipped little bit um, but in fairness to her, she does. She's very generous with her money. Okay. She feeds and clothes any beggars that come to her door. Oh, we could do with her now in yeah. London. Yeah, and if also if any noblemen, any princes, sheikhs come to visit, she always lavishes huge gifts on them, which results in her accruing huge debts. Um. Um, when she was living in London, she'd once wet, wet, met. And there are conflicting reports of whether it was a sort of fortune teller or a lunatic. Okay. It could be a fine line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who had told her that one day she would lead the chosen people. Uh, who? Uh, oh, well, okay. It's kind of a bit vague, really. Yeah, well. It yeah. could mean, you know, in football. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, but by this point, she has got it fixed in her mind that this is her purpose in life. She has this, okay. she's a queen, she's going to do something amazing. I mean, I suppose, I don't know, I've not heard of that many women in history who kind of almost believe they're the Messiah. Yeah. Well, she's, sounds she's like she's going there. in that direction. Yeah, she's definitely okay. going in that direction. Okay. Um, when a European traveller was murdered in the mountains nearby, and she was incensed, and she ordered for 50 villages to be burned and pillaged. Oh, yeah. Oh, right, that's not very nice. Resulting in 300 men being killed and their women being sold as slaves. <gasps> oh, that's So we painful. go from amazing things to dreadful things. Oh, okay, that's a bit hard to take. Yeah, that is a bit hard to take. Um, All right, then. <sighs> in 1817, a deformed foal was born, which right. to her signified that it was fated to carry the Messiah. Okay. Uh, not that sorry, not the Messiah, the Mahidi, which is an Islamic Messiah figure. Okay. To Jerusalem, she believed that's why this foal had been born near her, and she kept it ready for the day when she was convinced that this Islamic Messiah would come. Right. Um. She also um got a mare to uh-huh. to sort of be with it. We'll come back to the mare in a little while. Okay. Um, when civil war broke out in the 1820s, Hester fed and clothed hundreds of refugees um, who came to her door. And it was this that really caused the huge, huge financial problem she had and she nearly went bankrupt. Um, 
by 1821, she moved further up into Mount Lebanon to uh-huh. uh, an abandoned monastery, which had twisting stairs and secret passages and corridors and was a really sort of odd place. And it had beautiful scented gardens. Mm. It was discovered quite some time afterwards that they believed that what she thought she was smoking was actually, uh, uh, you know, she thought it was a fairly harmless substance, was some sort of hallucinogenic herb. And it led her to do many more odd things, including feeding sherbet to her horse. Which I I, I don't know how easy sherbet is to come by in the 1820s in the desert. When was sherbet invented? Can anyone answer this question for us? (laughs) Anyway, so that's the sort of thing that she's kind of getting up to. And she's now, she's getting more and more reclusive. We don't know what the herb... I'm not going to try and get hold of it. No, 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 no. I'm just like... It was something like apple thorn or something. Okay. That I think is perfectly harmless as a plant, but when you smoke it... Interesting. Um, She had, by this point, also got very interested in, like, astrology and the stars and was reading lots of kind of way out there sort of books. It's in the stars. Yeah. (laughs) It's in the stars. They're Libra men. Um... In 1825, she unfortunately had news that her brother James had committed suicide in London. Um, And by 1831, her maid had died. And Charles, do you remember? Yes. Charles, he returns to England and got married. For all the time that he'd been journeying with her, he had had unrequited love for her. Oh. But he was so devoted to her that even after he went back, he came back to visit her twice, which must have been a fairly... Oh, my good! It must have taken you half the year to get there yeah. and get back. And on these subsequent visits, he was shocked to see that she'd become toothless, almost blind, was paper thin and coughing up blood. Yeah. Sounds like tuberculosis. Yeah. Um, she. So, yeah, she's going almost blind. Uh, and in 1835... A visitor comes to see her and she tells the visitor that she can no longer read. All she needs to do is have the stars for sublime knowledge of all. So it's getting a little bit more and more. Yeah, Um, offhand. Yeah. Um, As a niece of a former Prime Minister, she's actually now become a bit of a national embarrassment. And by 1838, the government have to cut off her pension because she's borrowed so much money from Turkish moneylenders that her pension needs to go to pay all this money off where she's been okay. borrowing money to feed and clothe the poor and yeah she doesn't seem to be spending lavish she's lived in well, a, she's wearing a nice style. men's clothes and yeah. she's toothless so and it's she's not like she's no but i think earlier on she may have been a bit excessive but she's now not living a sort of crazy life yeah um she writes letters uh, to queen victoria protesting that about the pension being cut off oh. but nothing is ever done about it her loyal staff are no longer given a wage and they have to steal from her to survive. I know. That's an interesting kind of Well, they have no wages, so... And she can't see anything. She's probably got lots of gold and beautiful things knocking around. She doesn't care. She has no interest But it's interesting that they're stealing in order to keep supporting her. That's a weird, complicated... But she's become like this sort of godlike figure and they all believe she's she's some sort of prophetess or something. Oh, she's reminding me a little bit of Sunset Boulevard. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what she's like. Um, What's her name? What? The woman in Sunset Boulevard. Um, oh, God. Now I'm in this and he's... Sorry, like, sorry. Okay. The actress is Gloria Swanson. And I know. It's, uh, What's the woman's name? We'll come back to it. When we remember it, that... Oh, don't. It'll pop into my head in yeah. a minute. You've thrown me. I've had too much pims. <laughs> um, oh, no. Come on. It's, it's, it's so irritating, isn't it? Because you know it's not... 
Norma Desmond. Well done! <laughs> I'm well annoyed it took done. me that long. Sorry. Um, anyway, she lives out her remaining months, walled up, sick, alone, and with only cats for company. It's like looking at my future. <laughs> um, she dies at the age of 63. Oh, no. In 1839. The assumed date of death is the 23rd of June. This is only assumed because a British official arrives to visit her and finds her body, which had already started to com- decompose. Oh, no. So by then, yeah, she'd been, she'd been by herself for quite a while. Uh, but as an interesting footnote, I think rather than end on a sad sure. sort of thing, I... I like the fact that whatever people say about her, they and let's face it, there have been a lot of really good things she's done. I would say much more good than and bad. I was very bloody terrible. I thing. was very surprised by the pillaging and the yeah. I think that, that, that was, surprised me. It seemed that out was of when character. She's already gone a little bit bonkers though. I think she's already smoking. I stuff also and wonder if her brother committed suicide. Was there a mental health issue could that well was have been. running well, in the family? Uh, Citizen Stanhope. He already sounds slightly barking. Yeah. Um, so one of the interesting things about her though was she was incredibly fearless yes and determined and didn't want anybody to stop her she earned the respect of leaders in the Middle East who normally had less than diplomatic ways one example Emir Bashir was a man who castrated a rebel leader's three sons burned out their eyes and cut away their tongues but she faced him with fearless charm courage and complete confidence so whereas wow. that's the sort of thing they would normally do with her, they would sit down and talk. And I think that's an interesting end to a fabulous, if rather tragically ending life, which seem to be always the ones I've been. Yes. <laughs> so Lady Well, Hester not Stanhope. notwithstanding the, the, the village business. Yes. I've... Well done. I raised my completely empty glass. Would you like a little dribble? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds vile. <laughs> Well Well done. done. Well done, Hester. Well done, Hester.